Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for our vision series, where we will be unpacking our four discipleship priorities of gathering the lost, growing in community, growing as disciples, and going on mission. These four priorities are how we understand God has called us to live as His disciples, and over the next two weeks, we will unpack how we believe God is calling and challenging us to outwork these priorities in 2023. Due to technical difficulties, this message was recorded at our Rabina location for the second week of our vision series by our lead minister, Michael Hands. We pray that this message is a blessing. On that note, friends, I'm excited for Vision Sunday Part 2. And uh, and I'd love to begin with prayer. Would you join with me as we pray? Gracious God, we come before You today and and we just just pause and still ourselves in Your presence. You are mighty and You are good. You are worthy of all praise. And I pray today, Fathers, as we just sit and wait under the weight of Your Word, would You shape us and change us? Would You transform us? for your word never returns void. We love you and we need more of you today. Come and let your will be done in this place. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. That's probably the first time I didn't pray, God, less of me and more of you. So let me just add that on to the end there as an important spiritual practice for me. Friends, I'm not sure, but does anyone else in the room like documentaries? Anyone else in the room like documentaries? I grew up watching documentaries. I mean, I love history, but outside of history, I love a good David Attenborough documentary. Anyone else out there loves a good David Attenborough documentary? There's something about the way David narrates life that just makes me think, man, you can make the boringest thing look amazing. Like I think ants are pretty boring creatures, but David Attenborough talks about ants and suddenly you're like, this is amazing. David will start like, here we have this beautiful ant colony from the African Serengeti Plains. And as we see, the characteristic of this African plant is how they carry their leaves back to their colony. And I'm finding myself being like, carry that leaf. That's amazing. Thank you so much. 8 a.m., nothing, nothing. It's horrible. Anyway, here's my question though. I would, love David, I would love David Attenborough to narrate my life, right? It's like, here we have Michael Hans as he walks out to go to work. I'm like, yes, that's right. But what I love about David Attenborough is he, he, he makes these animals seem like so beautiful and wonderful. And they are because he kind of knows so much about them. He knows what every species is marked by, right? Here's my question. If David Attenborough could narrate new life, what would he say? If he was to observe... What happens out in that courtyard? What would David say about us? Here we have new life, straight after the 10 a.m. service. As we can see, the horde of parents eager to pick up their screaming children, make their way to kids' life, hoping to get to the car park before a pastor stops them in the courtyard. Then we have David and Margaret who quickly and, and surely make their way straight out of the gate so that they might be able to make their coffee appointment straight after church. And yes, there are people, as you know at New Life, are marked by socialising. But they don't socialise with everybody. No, they must know the person. They talk to the exact same people every single week. And then next week we'll complain, nobody knows who I am. And here we have the lead minister with his cup of coffee, trying to make his way to the green room so nobody talks to him. <laughs> right? Like, like, what would David Attenborough say about new life? 
Now, some of those are a joke. If you're a kid's life parent, I'm sure it's not true of you. I don't think that you, my experience, your experience with me would be that I'm always in a green room somewhere. Uh, if it is, please chat to me. That would be horrible. But, but some of these things, man, uh, some of them hit a bit closer to home. Hey, I, sometimes I do walk through the courtyard pretty quickly. Sometimes we've, we schedule our Sundays so that we only just wedge church in. And the question I want to ask us today is this. What are we known for? What are we known for? What is our community known for? This became pertinent to me a couple of years ago when a hero of mine, a guy named Francis Chan, led an amazing church in San Francisco, massive church called Cornerstone. And Cornerstone was a growing, large, mega church. And about four or five years ago, Francis Chan walked away. He stepped down from his role and said, I no longer want to lead this church. And it was a really interesting moment because it wasn't because of an integrity fall. It wasn't because he was stealing money. It wasn't because of anything that he just sensed it was time. And Facebook actually invited Francis Chan to come into their business and talk to their employees about community. What had Francis learned about community? And they asked him, why did you leave such a growing, thriving church? And he said, I can tell you exactly why. A couple of years ago, a young man uh, came into our church and he, from a gang. He was involved in street warfare. He was involved in gangs that were criminal. It was not going well for him. He came along to our church and he experienced the presence of God. His life was transformed and he became saved. It was, it was a beautiful moment. We had the joy of baptising this, this former gang member. And, and we were so excited when he started serving on rosters and, and welcoming people and, and helping out around the church. But a couple of months after, this ex-gang member started to not come as often to Cornerstone. That eventually he didn't just stop coming as often, he stopped coming altogether. And Francis said, I actually saw him on the streets one day. And I said, mate, we miss you. What happened? And he, he said, well, when I became a Christian, I was told that I was being welcomed into a family. But what I found out pretty fast is that my gang does family way better than the church. I, I belong there. I'm not sure I belong here. It's too big. It's too big. And Francis Chan said it broke him so much that he decided to just do small church, like small churches all over San Fran now, not big church anymore. And I remember the ripple it sent out across the world as people were like, maybe big church isn't what we should be doing. Now at that time, it was a really good news for me because I led a small church in the centre of Brisbane City. We were a church plant. I'm like, yeah, big church. No, that sucks. We shouldn't have big churches. And then suddenly God calls me to come and lead New Life, family churches and New Life Rabina. And friends, there's no stretch of the imagination. We are a big church. And, and, and there's this uncomfortable nature that I've sat with being like, God, are you against the church sizes? Are you against large communities like this? And it breaks me to think that someone might come to New Life and not be known. So friends, today, uh, it, it's, it's, I'm sad to announce that I'll actually be, no, I'm kidding, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> because here's my thing, I, I actually wanna believe that the size of a church, some of you are like, oh, what? Uh, the size of the church should not affect the nature of our belonging. I want to dare to hope and believe that we can continue to thrive as a church and still have places of intimate belonging where everyone is known, everybody. Because that's the heart of what new life is. But you know what? It's actually the heart of a man named Jesus who in John 13, 35, when he was narrating the story of his disciples, he says, you want to know what will mark my people? You will know my disciples by their love for one another. How good would it be if David Attenborough narrated our community once? He says, you shall know those who go to new life by their love for one another. 
Is that true? Is that what, what we would say? Is that, is that what makes us? I, I don't know if that's what people know New Life for. When I ask people why they come, they're like, man, you've got a great kids ministry, which is awesome. Hey, there's that big LED screen that I've got to wear sunglasses for to just look at, right? That's awesome. Like we've got aircon. I can sneak in and sneak out and no one knows. Like there are so many things that people know New Life for, but I wonder if we're known for the things that were close to Jesus's heart. Are we known for our love for one another? My best friend, Timothy Keller says it like this, community is more than just the result of the preaching of the gospel. It is itself a declaration and expression of the gospel. What is this meaning? It's meaning you want to know how people know what the gospel is. It's not just by what we say, it's by how we live. If a gang member was to walk into this church, would they sense that they have an opportunity to be part of a family or a system? I believe the world is calling out our name saying, don't just tell me what you believe. Show me what you believe. Show me. Mike Frost says this amazing line about community. And I didn't say it in the 8 a.m. service, 10 a.m. You get new material in the 10 a.m. that we just, you just think through after we've done a, a run through with the eight. He says this, evangelicals think that we should share our faith and live our life. What would it look like if we lived the faith and shared our life? This is the heart of who we are. We exist to see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. That word thriving is so important. We could have said growing. We could have said, we could have said flourishing. We could have said increasing in number, but we went with thriving. Why? Because it's not about numbers. Thriving, you know when something's thriving. You feel it. It's an intangible, qualitative thing. You're like, there's something about this place. We believe to thrive as a church, we've got to take discipleship seriously. And discipleship here at New Life means four things. It means that every one of us is responsible. If we follow Jesus, we're responsible for gathering the lost. We're responsible for gluing in the community. We're responsible for growing as disciples. It'll be on the screen behind me. We're responsible for going on mission. Last week, I spoke about go on mission and gather the lost. This week, I wanna talk about the middle two. Last week was external. This week is internal. What does it mean to glue as a community and grow as disciples? What does it mean for us to take John 13, 35 seriously? that they might be known by their love for each other. This is a challenge to us. It should be a challenge to us. So today to process this, I want to ask two questions that centre around a table. Two questions that I think encapsulate the heart of gluing community and growers' disciples. And it's simply this. Who are you feasting with and what are you feasting on? Who are you feasting with and what are you feasting on? Now, if you're online, there's every chance you're actually probably feasting right now. That's the advantage of being online. But if you're in the room, I'm gonna preach this nice and quick so you don't get too hungry and desire lunch too soon. But these are questions, I believe, of discipleship. Who are you feasting with? You know, part of this heart of our church is that we wanna grow to become more like Christ. And we talk a lot about Jesus. Why? Because He was more than a human. He was the Son of God. He is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's our resurrected Saviour. But we wanna become like Christ. We see that as a good thing that the Bible calls us to do. And so we talk about His life, right? We talk about how Jesus prayed. Man, I wanna pray like Jesus prayed. We talk about how He loves sinners. I wanna love sinners like Jesus loves sinners. Then we wanna talk about how He challenges the establishment. Yeah, let's do that. He advocates for justice. That's a beautiful. But there's one part of Jesus' life that I don't really hear sermons about, but it's central to who Jesus was. We don't talk about the fact that Jesus loved to feast. He loved food. How good news is that? Amen. In fact, you read the Gospels, you'll read more about Jesus' feasting than His fasting. That is good news again. Amen. 
but we don't talk about it. See, the truth is, is that Jesus spent prolific time feasting. His first miracle, where was that? At a wedding feast in Cana, where they were running out of wine. So Jesus turns water into wine so the feast might continue, foreshadowing the coming of the kingdom of God. There's another moment where he's gathered with 5,000 people and they're hungry. Instead of sending them away, he's like, no, 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 everyone stay. Watch this. He he gets loaves and fishes. He prays and gives thanks to God. They multiply to feed everyone. So everyone has a feast with enough left over. So much is this an act of God's miraculous provision. He does it again later in the Gospels. And there are moments, right, where Jesus, there are these words where Jesus was at a Pharisee's house eating dinner. Jesus was at so-and-so's house eating dinner. Jesus seemed where if there was food on, you could be sure that Jesus was somewhere nearby hanging out to have a good feed with good people. Why do I say this? Because I think we've forgotten the spiritual nature of hospitality, the spiritual nature of feasting with each other and belonging together. See, friends, the call of discipleship is actually a call to community. The call of discipleship is actually a call of community. There is actually no, there's no example in the Bible where God calls someone to follow Him into isolation and loneliness after the time of Jesus. They're always driven towards community. They do stuff by themselves, but they're always returning to a body of people. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you find out that hospitality is one of the first fruits of people who choose to follow Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, we read about Matthew, who's a tax collector. Now, tax collectors weren't great people. People didn't like tax collectors. Tax collectors were these people who, uh, they, they, they would actually rob from the Jewish people. They would tax the Jewish people, even though they themselves were Jews, and give them to the Roman, Roman Empire to fund their military and governance. So the Jewish people hated tax collectors. In fact, there were people called zealots who were Jewish terrorists that would stab tax collectors if ever they saw them. People didn't like tax collectors. But Matthew, who we believe wrote the Gospel of Matthew, was a tax collector. And we find out how he started to follow Jesus. We read these words. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He said, follow me, he told him. Now we've got to remember, Jesus got followers at this time. In fact, one of his other followers was actually a zealot, was actually a terrorist. He was actually someone who hated tax collectors. And Jesus does this interesting thing. He walks along. I wonder if he's eyeing the zealot at this point. He looks at the tax collector. He's like, hey, you come follow me. And Matthew's like, yeah, but if I'm following you, that guy's got to like get rid of all of his knives because he's going to be really hectic pretty fast. But there's this moment where he stands up and he comes to follow Jesus. Now, what is one of the first things that Matthew does? It says here, Matthew got up and followed him. In verse 10, we read, whilst Jesus was having dinner, where? At Matthew's house. The first response of Matthew, he's just walking with Jesus. Jesus, I'm so excited to be following you. Hey, are you hungry? He's like, man, I love food. I'm hungry. And Matthew's like, you should come and eat at my house. In fact, you should come eat and I'm gonna get all my friends. I don't like three of them. They're all tax collectors, but they'll get all their friends and we'll eat together. As long as Simon the Zealot keeps his knives away from our back, we'll have a great time. And they get together and they're hanging out and it's controversial. But here's a picture of the kingdom of God where Zealot and tax collector are sitting with a Jewish rabbi and they're feasting together. So much so the Pharisees are like, whoa, 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 what the heck's going on here? They come in in the next verse and they say to him, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus turns to me and says, it is not, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. And here's the beauty of what Jesus is saying here. Community in the kingdom of God is actually really quite simple. 
Because why we have community is because we have something common about all of us. And why was Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector next to Peter the fisherman with Jesus and a whole bunch of men and women who shouldn't have been caught dead in a room? It's because they all had something in common. They were all sick and they needed a Saviour. And Jesus is like, when you realise the state of the human condition, you realise what draws us together is far greater than anything that disunifies us. And I'm the doctor that's come to make people well again. Here at the table in Matthew's house, we see radical hospitality played out. Who's around your table? Who eats with you? Who's invited into your home, into your house? Because I think this should challenge us, right? This should challenge us because every time we see Jesus, people ridiculed Him because of who He ate with. How many of us are ridiculed because of who we eat with? How many of us, when we go to the courtyard, don't think through, will I like this person? Is this person safe? Will I get along with this person? But we radically live our lives in such a way where we're like, God, who are you leading me to love and to belong with today? What would that look like if that marked us? What would it look like? But here's the problem, I think, with where our faith is at, with sanitized hospitality is that we surround our tables with people that look like us, talk like us, think like us, act like us and agree with us. So we might not be challenged. That's just not the way Jesus seemed to function when He was on earth. The kingdom of God broke through because of everyone didn't fit together except for the fact that they all followed Jesus. Friends, this wasn't just a new Christian thing. This is the thing where the church ordered their life over time. If we go to Acts chapter two, we read on that the early church after the greatest revival that happened post Jesus, 3000 people came to know Jesus and they started to order their life. In Acts chapter two, we get a vision of what this looked like. And we read that they, all of these people devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. That's what we're doing right now. Where we're devoting ourselves to the words written down by the apostles, words written down in scripture that we might learn it together. And fellowship. That word fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia is actually a Greek word that just means shared commonality. They devoted themselves to their shared commonality, which means that prostitutes, tax collectors, religious elite, government officials and rabbis all found themselves eating around the same table in the Kingdom of God. And that's what confused the ancient world. It confused them, but they didn't mind because God was doing something in their midst. Everyone was filled with awe, the Bible goes on to say, as many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. We read on, they sold property and possessions to give anyone that who had need and every day continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread together in their homes and ate together with begrudging and displeasing hearts. They, they broke bread in their homes and ate together as long as their kids went to the same school. They broke bread in their homes together and ate together as long as they voted for the Liberal Party. They broke bread in their homes together as long as they were the same colour skin, same background, same socioeconomic status, as long as they didn't breathe too loudly or smell too weird. They broke bread in their homes together with glad and sincere hearts. Wow. Is that how we do hospitality? Praising God and enjoying the favour of all people and the Lord added to their number daily those. Why would God add to the number of the early church? I think because He could trust it. He could trust that in their brokenness, in their deceit, in all of their brokenness, they were radically inclusive of people who said, I wanna follow Jesus. And they're like, come and follow Him with us. 
See friends, this is what we're called to be. This is who we're called to be. Jesus was massive on eating food with people because there's no greater thing that binds us together than food. But He always made sure there's no documentation of Jesus really ever eating alone. What a profound example of what community might look like. And this shook the early world. I'm reading a book at the moment by a guy named um, Alan Creeder called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. It's as dense as the title makes it sound. But Alan Creeder says this, if it was not primarily what the Christians said that carried weight with outsiders, it was what they did and embodied that was both disconcerting and converting. It was their habitus that reflects their, their reflexes and way of life that suggested there was another way to perceive reality. That made the Christians interesting, challenging, and worth investigating. Friends, when people look at your dinner table, when people look at who you do coffee with, when people look at who you talk with in the courtyard or how you do hospitality during the week, are they confused? Are they going, why on earth are you guys in the same house? They should be. They should be. Why? Because Christ didn't call us to remain as individuals. He called us out of individualism into radical selflessness. Timothy Keller would say it like this. This is what Christ has won for you on the cross. A new life together with the people of God. Once you were alienated from others, but now you have been brought near. He's echoing words from 1 Peter 2 verse 10, where it says, once you were not a people, now you were a people. Every, now you are a people. Every time in the Bible we, we, where Paul talks about sin, he talks about it individually. You were dead in your transgressions. You fell short of the glory of God, right? Well, that one, he says, all of us. But there's this sense of individuality. But when he starts to talk about what Christ has done, he says, we, us. There's this sense when we've responded to the Kingdom of God, we go from it being about me to now we belong to a family and it's about us. We're saved from selfishness into radical selflessness and our lives should reflect that. But do they? Paul talks about this even to the Romans. He says, guys, as you're outworking your faith in Romans chapter 12, he says all these things, but he emphasises this, practice hospitality. This means if you're like me and you suck at hospitality, He's not saying perfect hospitality, but the practice of a Christian is that we practice hospitality. Friends, when was the last time you had people around your table, you went for coffee with someone, you sought to catch up with someone that it made no sense other than the Kingdom of God is radically inviting people to the table? What would this look like? Imagine a church where no one stood alone. Imagine a place where we had radical dinners and feasts, where we put feasts on for people and we say, come and eat and just belong with us. Imagine if we were so dedicated to this that we freed Sundays from every other appointment because we knew that we were coming home with a family from church and they were gonna have Sunday lunch with us. And maybe you're a single here and that's not a reality for you, that we would be a church where you never had to eat alone on Sundays. You're always invited in. Friends, I've heard some really sad things over the last six months. One person said to me, Michael, well, my first Sunday here, I sat in a seat and someone came along and said to me, that's my seat. That could have been someone's 18-year-old atheist son or daughter with their last chance to respond to the gospel and they got told to move. We've had families sit at the grey tables out in the courtyard and they told me it was been four weeks and no one said anything to us. There have been moments where we've sat with people and cried and they're like, just no one rings me unless they're paid and on staff. 
I'm like, this isn't who we're meant to be. You know, there's only one thing that's stopping us from forming a community that reflects the kingdom of God. And it's this, it's your dream of community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together and he says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Sometimes I talk to people like, man, in my past church, we had this great community. I wish we could be like that. Or, hey, wouldn't it be good if new life was like this? And we're not there yet. How disappointing is that? But, but the people who I'm radically challenged by are those people who don't talk of a dream of community are those people who practice community. They walk out to the courtyard. They don't go, no one speaks to me. They ask the question, hey, I'm a mature Christian. Who are you calling me to speak to, Jesus? They don't go home and be like, man, new life's so lonely, it's too big. They go, let's make this thing small. I'm starting a small group. The truth is, friends, that new life is radically filled with people from other churches who have come here to heal and restore and, and revive. And that's great. We have some people who only have come to church for the first time at new life as well, which is awesome. But the majority of people here have some sense of being mature in their faith. And here's, here's the truth. I don't think you can say the words mature Christian and not wanting to talk to people in the same sentence because I'm an introvert and God over the last two years has convicted me and led me to repentance in the way that I have looked down in the courtyard, been too busy, walked too fast. And God says, Michael, I'm calling you to love people. So the last question I wanna ask us before I move into the, to the final part of today's sermon is this, how do you want people to describe our community? because it's not Marcel Fricker's job, but she does a great job. If you've ever had a phone call from Marcel, she's awesome. She helps with our small groups, these are pastoral teams. It's not Marianne Lush's job. She takes care of newcomers and rings the mom, does a great job at Pathways. These people are paid on staff and they do beautiful, but it's not their responsibility. If our thought is, hey, there's a new person here, the church will ring them during the week, we've missed the point. It's ours. It's us. It has to be. So we've got to ask this question. Are, you a fe- are we a community that is like a fence or are we a community that is like a well? Alan Hirsch, uh, this missiologist, uh, kind of talks about it like this, that Christian communities can either be fences or wells. What is a fence? Well, a fence is really good at keeping things out and keeping things in. And it's hard to get in because you have to go through the gate and you only get through the gate if someone opens it for you. So some Christian communities are more like fences. And he says, or Christian communities could be like a well. What brings people to a well? It's not the desire to be inside the fence. It's it's the thirst that only the well can quench. You don't have to force people to stay near a source of life. They dwell there because they know that's where the water is. Friends, are we more of a well or a fence community? Just, you know, here's the cheat sheet. I would love us to be a well where the hungry and the thirsty and the desperate, the lonely, the tired, the weak, the poor, those who are having great weeks or bad weeks are drawn to community with us, not just on Sundays, but through the week because we know the source of life, the bread of life and the living water, His name is Jesus and His presence is outworked in and amongst us consistently. That's who I think God's called us to be. So I wanna challenge you today. If God is stirring in you, there's two calls to action. I wanna say this for online as well. The first call to action is this. I think some of us are being called to be a part of or start a small group. Now, I know this is hard. Now, 
my wife and I last year weren't in a small group, which is kind of settling in and we were running Catalyst and there's a whole bunch, well, I was running Catalyst, a whole bunch of stuff going on. But I said to Sarah, hey, I think we need to start a small group. She's like, we don't have time. You have meetings during the week. We got two little kids. Like, you know, we, we finished wrangling our kids like 7.30 on a good night. And, and you want me to be, us to be in a small group? And we talked about it. And then she was like, Michael, I think we need to start a small group. So Monday nights for now for us is like hectic in our household because we have people coming over. And I'm gonna let you know if you're saying I'm too busy for that, I feel you. But I'll just say this, as Christians, we can never be too busy for community. We need it. There'd be moments, friends, like two weeks ago, I was just in tears on on Monday night thinking to myself, so blessed. Friends, we would love to provide a small group that's helpful, but you know what? Some of you are called to start a small group that works. And we would love to talk to you as well. If that's what you're feeling called to, we'd love you to scan that QR code or if you wanna lead a small group, see us at the Connect Desk afterwards. But here's the second thing. Number one, start a small group or lead a, or be in a small group. Friends, I know a bunch of you aren't in small groups and you're like, you're not even leaning in to do the QR code or now see what Brad was talking about. That's awesome. There's this moment and even online, we wanna do small groups online where people online are called together into community, whether it's on Zoom or in person, where our online community has community as well. James will talk to you more about that in a moment. But here's the second thing. What would it look like if no one in our church eats or stands alone? No one. That we see people by themselves as an emergency. Can I tell you a funny story? I've got the microphone. doesn't matter if you said no. There's this sense, right? In the first service, there was a lady sitting down here called Di Tuppen. I love Di. And the first four rows around Dai were empty. In the middle of this sermon, were empty. I pointed it out three times and everyone laughed. People don't sit down the front of church because they wanna be alone. People sit usually down the backs of church if they wanna be alone. And the first four rows were empty and Dai and another lady were sitting by themselves and no one moved. I highlighted it in the middle of a sermon about community and people are like, ha, ha, ha. Move! What are you doing? And it's like this thing where we're so good at hearing things, we're not doing. When you go to the courtyard, there's going to be people in the courtyard who are by themselves. They're wondering, are these guys legit? And we've got to be passionate about going. I will be known. We will be known by our love for one another. That's on us. It only works because that's the best way to demonstrate that Jesus Christ has transformed our hearts. But friends, what about this? What if you just cleared one Sunday a month? Whether you're single, family, working, whatever, you said one Sunday a month, we're not rushing. We've got to find someone to have lunch with. Now I know this is hard. I know it causes time and preparation. But imagine what this church would be like if on Sunday, people were like, hey kids, let's find another family to have lunch with. And maybe you can't afford that necessarily right now. Maybe you would be the one that people invite to their house to have lunch with them. But free up your calendar so you can say yes. Or maybe it's not lunch, maybe it's dinner, maybe it's a picnic next week, maybe it's a beach. What would it look like if radical community, people were like, I'm not trying to leave on Sunday and get out. I've got to dwell and stay because fellowship's just as important as preaching. Friends, I finished today with the last thought. It's that this, is that we're not just called to grow in community. We're also called to grow as disciples. In Paul, whenever you see Aaron hop up on platform, that's a good indication. Hey, Michael, it's time to wrap up the sermon. (laughs) I'm kidding. I told him to come up then. A guy named Neil Cole says it like this. Ultimately, each church will be evaluated by one thing. It's disciples. Your church is only as good as her disciples. It does not matter how good your praise, preaching, programs or property are. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumeristic and not radically obedient, your church is not good. 
So here's my final question. It's not just who are you feasting with. The question is this, what are you feasting upon? We could gather together in community and it could be really poisonous. It could be filled with gossip, hurt, conspiracy theories. Or when we gather together in community, we can make the decision that we're gonna see each other become more like Christ. Some people say to me, I just don't know what to say to people. If you're a follower of Jesus, can I tell you, you've got something to say. Can I tell you exactly how you could start every conversation in the courtyard today? Hey, we haven't met. My name is Michael, what's your name? Hey, I'd love to hear your testimony. How did you come to meet Jesus? How many of us in this room have testimonies? Don't put your hands up, right? How many people online have testimonies? And yet we struggle to talk to people about things in church that our main point of commonality, we could be like, let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life and why I'm here today. And it's a struggle, but I'm here. And so maybe we could be weeping together. We haven't even talked about liberal versus Labour Party. We're just talking about the biggest thing in our world, what Jesus is doing in me. And then the next thing we could ask is, hey, hey, how could I be praying for you this week as you follow Jesus in your world? There is no one in this room that should not have an answer for that question. How can we be praying for each other this week as we talk about Jesus in our world? You could go to the courtyard and we could actually challenge each other to grow as disciples. We could meet together. Paul says it like this. He says in 1 Corinthians, Colossians 1, he goes, this is what, he is the one we proclaim being Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone. Why? With all wisdom so that we, we may present everyone fully mature in Christ Jesus one day. This means that there is such a thing as an immature Christian and there is such a thing as a mature Christian and that we should long to see each other grow in maturity. We should long for it. Friends, here's a basic question for you. Who are you discipling and who are you being discipled by? That's the marker. That's what church is for. And we have, we have so many opportunities for it. If you're like, I don't know who to disciple. Can I tell you something? Right now we have about you know, two, 300 kids between the age of zero and 18 hanging out in kids' life and in youth leaders. And the main leaders involved in running those programs are young adults. And when we go away on young adult retreat, we have to sometimes think about canceling our kids' program because there's not enough adults because it's run by young adults. There's some adults that serve, but disproportionately run by young adults. Which means that we have meted out discipleship of the next generation to those who still need to be discipled as well. I'm just calling mums and dads, single parents, retirees. I was gonna ask, we need more people serving our generation's ministries. Why? Because our teenagers on Friday nights are facing a dark world and they need wisdom. Our kids on Sunday mornings need wisdom. My children are in that service. And I hope that they're doing more than just eating lollies and playing games. Well, I'm sure they would love it. They're growing to be like Christ. Our young adults who gather at 6 p.m., mainly in our 6 p.m. service, they need wisdom. That's why Lindsey Brown, the guy sailing the video, he comes every Sunday night and he, he meets with them. He runs a young adult small group, not because they're his age. He's like 30 plus, right? But they're like, they're young. Why? Because this is how we see faith become genuine. But here's the next thing. Who are you being discipled by? And I just gotta call out pride. Too many of us think that we, don't, we can be discipled by a pastor in America or a good YouTube video. And that seems to be nothing that I see in Scripture. We're called to be discipled by the community that we're in. That's it. This is part of discipleship. It's always meeting with people and saying, hey, this is what I'm struggling out with Jesus. How can I pray for you? And that is humility. And there are too many of us consumed with pride that we don't need help. And I don't know anyone, anyone that doesn't need help on the journey home. Who are you being discipled around? This is why I'm in a small group, friends, as the lead pastor of this church, because I need help. 
I need people to pray with me, to sit with me and read the Bible together, be challenged by how, what they see. So what shall we do? Here's a great idea, just something random that just came to me. Let's join a small group. That was a joke that didn't work. <laughs> Let's join, it's be on the screen behind me. Let's join a small group. Let's get involved in generation stuff. And later this year, um, Dave Yates and a bunch of our pastors were preparing some short courses, seven weeks long, that we might actually be able to resource you with things for not only your small groups, but also for the wider life around knowing the Bible, Christian ethics. And you can sign up for any of this stuff on that QR code in front of you. But here's the question, are we just gonna be people who know how to listen to a good sermon and leave and nothing changes? Small group may not be right for you right now, I get that. But there is a next step for every person in this room today. Who are you feasting with? And what are you feasting on? Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can contact us at church.nu or through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.